snooping in the name of national security. On Wednesday, May 15th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The fallout continues over the U.S. government's intrusion into AP journalist phone records. The Obama administration says it was investigating a dangerous national security leak. But this expert says you can't do that without checks and balances. It sets an extremely disturbing precedent. Also today, more on Russian allegations of U.S. spying and amusement over the alleged spy's disguise. But actually, this former spy says wigs aren't unusual for a so-called light disguise. Changing your hair coloring very quickly, putting on glasses if you don't normally wear them, putting on a mustache if you don't normally have a mustache. That certainly was what I used. And later, outrage over a $21 ice cream cone. Tourists cry foul over prices in Rome. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. By now you've heard that the Department of Justice secretly seized phone records from the Associated Press. The news broke Monday. The AP was only told last Friday. And this after two months of a massive and unprecedented search of telephone records of office, mobile, and personal lines of AP reporters. Attorney General Eric Holder says the search was justified to get to the bottom of one of the most serious leaks he's ever seen. But testifying before the House Judiciary Committee today, Holder said that he had earlier recused himself from the case, so had no knowledge of the secret subpoena or other details on why regulations to govern press subpoenas were bypassed. The story at issue appears to be an AP report on a CIA investigation into a bomb plot that was disrupted in Yemen last year. Stephen Aftergood directs a project on government secrecy for the Federation of American Scientists. He joins us now to break down what this means. There are some very specific regulations, Stephen, the government must follow when obtaining information from a news organization. So tell us point by point which regulations were bypassed by the Department of Justice. A subpoena against the press is supposed to be narrowly crafted. The government is supposed to take um, whatever alternative measures it can to get the information it needs before seeking a subpoena. A subpoena should be a last resort, not a first resort. Um, The media organization should be notified that its records are being sought unless doing so would uh, disrupt the investigation. And the attorney general or another senior level official is supposed to personally approve the action. It's not like a regular uh, subpoena in a criminal proceeding. So all of these steps are intended to focus and narrow the the application of the subpoena. But in this case, uh, the government invoked waivers to uh, circumvent those regulatory requirements and ended up with a very broad and um, unfocused request for records, not the the contents of the communications themselves, but the so-called toll records that indicate um, what numbers were calling what lines at, at the Associated Press bureaus which in effect identifies all of the the uh, Associated Press sources and contacts uh, that were made by telephone. 
Well, Attorney General Holder says this was one of the most serious leaks he's ever seen. I mean, what kind of justification is required to, as you say, write up these waivers? The the Justice Department acted within its authority. Did it do the right thing? I say no. And um, in effect, it was exercising its own judgment without any check, without any external review. Um, by by refusing to notify the Associated Press that it that uh, its records would be collected, the the FBI effectively denied uh, the AP an opportunity to go to court and to attempt to quash the subpoena. There was no judicial review of this of this move at all, and um, I believe that the interests of the AP and of the press as an institution were compromised as a result. How do we figure out if the government's uh, concerns have merit? You know, the the way things are right now, we are asked to take their word for it. And I I, I think that's not a satisfactory state of affairs. Um, There needs to be um, independent investigation, either through Congress, through uh, judicial review, through leaks, dare I say. We need more information than, than we have received. Stephen Aftergood directs a project on government secrecy for the Federation of American Scientists. Stephen, thanks very much. Thanks. And as long as we're on the subject of intrigue and prying... That's what Russian TV viewers heard today. It's supposedly the voice of American diplomat and alleged spy Ryan Fogle making arrangements on the phone for a secret meeting with a Russian agent. The meeting has to be today, not tomorrow, the voice says. It has to be today. Fogel was reportedly busted with the following items on him. Two wigs, one blonde, one brown dark glasses, a street map, a compass, two pocket knives, and a flashlight, a decidedly un-smartphone, a wad of euros, and a cryptic spy recruitment letter. They sound like props from an old Cold War-era movie, but according to Peter Ernest, those things are all still part of a spy's arsenal. Ernest is the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and he should know something about spy gear. For 25 years of his life, he used such gear himself as an agent for the CIA. Ernest says that for serious spies, low-tech is the way to go. People can be wary of the technology, whether it's cell phones or the Internet, laptops, and so forth. You'll remember uh, bin Laden, of course, cut off all electronic communication and used a courier, something from ancient times. And the concern, of course, is that any of the high-tech things can be hacked into. I mean, what can be coded can be decoded. And the idea, I think, behind the sort of gear that you saw, it's very traditional. If it were a, a what we used to call a light disguise, Let's say you're meeting someone at night and you don't want to be observed casually and recognized, either for your sake or the sake of the individual you're meeting who may be an agent. Something like that, changing your hair coloring very quickly, uh, putting on glasses if you don't normally wear them, putting on a mustache if you don't normally have a mustache. That certainly was what I used as a light disguise when I was in operations because uh, it's a very quick thing to do. Uh, you can do it, uh, you know, stopping off in a men's room, going uh, possibly uh, through a corridor of some kind. So I think that just as spying will continue to be with us, I think some of the traditional means will also stay with us. 
Now, you point out that Osama bin Laden got rid of all of these kind of fancy things because it might track him down. But he got caught precisely because he was using this medieval tool, shall we say, a human courier. I mean, wouldn't that be an argument against going old school? Well, it took 10 years to do it. As you recall, one of the controversial subjects in the whole issue of finding bin Laden was, of course, identifying the courier, determining that there was one, identifying him, and, of course, trying to find where he lived and so forth. In other words, it was a very arduous task, as you recall, both the in reality and uh, even it came out in Zero Dark Thirty, the film, how hard it had been to identify the courier and know that he was a courier and that he might still lead us to bin Laden. Now, the International Spy Museum that you run in Washington shows the full array of cool spy stuff. Do you have any fake rocks like the one the British apparently used to hide a receiver in Moscow a few years ago? And what about Max Smart's phone shoot? Did anyone really (laughs) use such a thing? We have a picture of Max Smart using his shoe phone. I remember in one of the programs, he he actually paused and picked up his other shoe, and there was a phone there, too. But does such a Um, thing exist? (laughs) No. We have a shoe on display there. It's not a shoe phone. It had a transmitter secretly placed in it, so uh, the intelligence service could eavesdrop. But the rock that was used in Moscow by the British, as I recall, was fairly good-sized. We do have something like it. We have a stump. Like a tree stump? That was used to conceal a device for tracking and recording Soviet missile firings. That was called telemetry, and it was very valuable information. It could give us the thrust and capabilities of the missile by looking at the telemetry. And and who was responsible for putting that fake tree stump near uh, the uh, launch pad? You were never asked to do that, were you? I did not put down a stump, no. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Ernest, former agent for the CIA, now executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington. Thanks for explaining this to us. It was good to be with you, Marco. You can see the video released by Russian intelligence officials of diplomat Ryan Fogel's detention. We've posted it at theworld.org. Now, when Kenyans went to the polls last March, they elected a new president, Uhuru Kenyatta. He's a son of Kenya's founding president. He's also one of the country's wealthiest people. And he's also under indictment by the International Criminal Court. Kenyatta stands accused of crimes against humanity, including organizing and funding the murder and displacement of thousands of his opponents after Kenya's 2007 election. His case is set to be heard in The Hague in July. But now that Kenyatta is president, some witnesses are quietly withdrawing their testimony. Kenyan Mina Kiai is U.N. Special Rapporteur on the right to freedom of peaceful assembly. He says trying Kenyatta's case now before the International Criminal Court is a thorny proposition. It's one thing to give evidence against a politician and another thing to give evidence against the president of your country. So even if you are safe and out of the country, the fact is you still have siblings and parents and relatives still in the country. And, and there is a, a rational fear, to be honest, that, that you worry about them. Do you have a sense of how a sitting president, Uhuru Kenyatta, would actually give testimony to a court in The Hague? I have absolutely no clue. And I think one, it's one of the interesting things when you, when you look at the Rome Statute, the law that creates the International Criminal Court. I think, you know, there is this place where it allows for indictees and people who are accused to be free on their own recognition that they will cooperate with the court. Now, it, I find that interesting because it, there's no jurisdiction in the whole world, anywhere at all, 
where anybody accused of killing two, three, four, five people is allowed to go free and, until they come to court. And at any rate, crimes against humanity are really the highest crimes in the world. And people who are charged with them, if within the context especially of a situation where the country itself is unable or unwilling to deal and handle that accountability, means that they're very powerful people. So letting them go scot-free and, and the only condition is that they appear before the court when it sits, it seems a bit interesting and a bit strange, to be honest. And I think it, of course, will lead to these questions of interference. Of course, it will lead to the questions of intimidation because in the context, for example, of, of the United States, it's like accusing a, a mafia don and then telling them you can come to court anytime you want to. It's incredible. Mm. Why does this case matter? For Kenya, it, it really is the very, very first time we have seen people who are powerful, people who are popular even, being taken head on to answer charges of crimes against humanity or any other charge of that matter. This country has had a history where if you're rich, you will almost certainly always get away with it. So for the first time, we're seeing big shots, what we call the big fish in this country, being taken on. That in itself is fundamental. Secondly, it's this case is important because of the messaging it, it, it presents. Kenya is the only case in the International Criminal Court that's not directly linked to a fully-fledged civil war that's going on. It was election-related violence and violence that went out of hand. And basically the international community, the International Criminal Court, and in fact the Kenyan parliament and government itself said they were willing to have these people held accountable. Mm. Now, there are beginnings of moves to turn back from accountability. So this is a struggle that we are engaged in to force and have accountability. For us, it's important. It was amazing to see these powerful people live on our televisions, on the stand, if you wish, you know, and, and sitting there accused. It never happened before. We never see this. We never know it. So it's a good first step. It's not enough. It is not enough by any means. And for many of us, the issue is that we hope that this case goes on and goes on properly. Whatever decision the court takes, the judges take, is fine. You know, what's important is the messaging that's taken on, that even if you're powerful, even if you're rich, even if you're the president, even if you're a powerful politician, you can be held accountable, or at least efforts can be made to hold you accountable. That's significant. Maina Kiai, former chairman of the Kenyan National Commission on Human Rights. He's also the director of Inform Action, a grassroots organization. Maina, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Still ahead on the world, from Condoleezza Rice to Chick Corea, it's all about practice, practice, practice on Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. I love Macs, and I'm not talking about laptops. Can we return to the pre-computer age for just a moment, people? We're talking apples now, the fruit. And even in this part of the world, the home of the Mac, it needs protection. A Canadian farmer is using something he calls the big bird to protect his crop of Macintosh apples. We'll get to that in a moment. First, though, here's our Macintosh-related geo-quiz for you. They're named after Scottish-Canadian farmer John McIntosh, who's credited with discovering this variety back around 1800. The question is, which Canadian town is the setting for this chapter of apple history? It's where the mother of all Macintosh apple trees once stood. Let's get the answer from Phil Lyle, who runs Mountain Apple Orchards in southern Ontario. Phil, where do Macintosh apples come from? Well, uh, 
the original Macintosh apple tree was discovered on a farm uh, in Dundee, Ontario, sort of between Ottawa, Montreal, Morrisburg, in that area. Right. Southern Ontario, Dundee is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. So your orchard isn't too far from there, Phil. What's going on with your apple trees right now? Well, like a lot of growers here in northern climes, we had to deal with frost again this year. We were at uh, full blossom, which means the blossoms were fully open and at their most susceptible point. So even uh, minus one or minus two degrees could cause a lot of damage to the blossoms and and, uh, destroy the reproductive parts, and and you would lose your crop. Right. Before the flower turns into an apple, it's got to bloom. Um, And this is a crucial stage in the uh, apple's development, correct? That's correct. If uh, you get these low temperatures, they will kill the reproductive parts, the stamens and the pistils on the on the flower, and you will have no no pollen available for uh, fertilization of the apple, and you will end up with nothing. What solution have you come up with to protect your apples at this very sensitive stage and uh, cold point of the season? This year, we hired a helicopter. We did it last year as well. We had to deal with the same problem with an early spring and uh, and then followed up by a frost. And what we did was hire a helicopter both seasons and and have it fly over the orchard once the temperature hit a certain point and blow the warm air back down onto the apple trees. It's called an inversion. And did it work? It was very effective for us last year. We had probably 90% of a normal crop. And uh, I know people around us were down to... 30, 40 percent, and even farther down in southern Ontario towards Toronto, that area, they had less than 10 percent. So, uh, yeah, it was very effective. It was a good year for us. The I mean, helicopters were expensive, but the price of apples went through the roof, and we had lots of them. So, it well, was good. The weird thing, though, is that cold temperatures come at very inconvenient times of the day, like two, three in the morning, and you've got, what, 10,000 trees. Yes, we brought the helicopter. Uh, the pilot stayed at my place, and we had the helicopter parked in the field, and we monitored the orchard, and as soon as it hit uh, minus one, we put it in the air, and that happened to be 2 o'clock in the morning. So, And it stayed, uh, he flew continuously right through till about 5 o'clock. If you're a small apple farmer, this isn't a solution that will really work for you, will it? Depends on how valuable your crop is, I guess. Uh, I mean, farmers are, are gamblers. Basically, you're always constantly dealing with the weather. And, yeah, it is a hit and miss, but uh, we have sat back in the past and not done anything and lost our entire crop, which is even more expensive, you know? Right. You know, it depends on how much (laughs) your livelihood depends on it, I guess. So you've got this cold snap. Any guess when uh, you'll be clear of frost? We're clear now. Well, that's good news. Yeah. You put the helicopter back in the the hangar? (laughs) Yeah, send them home (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Phil Lyle runs Mountain Apple Orchards in southern Ontario. He provided us with the answer to our geo-quiz today. That would be Dundila, the home of the Macintosh apple. Thanks so much, Phil. All right, Marco. Thank you. In Rome, Italy, you can probably find Macintosh gelato. The gelateria there seem to have every imaginable flavor, putting Baskin-Robbins to shame. But right now, one ice cream parlor in Rome is fighting off some bad publicity. It charged some British tourists 64 euros for four ice cream cones. That's about $84 or 21 bucks per cone. Well, the Brits posted a photo of the bill online, and the outrage went viral. Reporter Megan Williams has our story from downtown Rome. 
The ice cream servers inside the Antica Gelateria give me a welcome as frosty as their product when I approach to find out just what a $21 ice cream cone looks like. Gold sprinkles, perhaps? No, no, no. It's been a tough couple of weeks for this gelateria near Rome's famous Spanish Steps. After making headlines around the world as the biggest tourist rip-off in Rome, they're a tad touchy about inquiries regarding price. Touchy, but not apologetic. An obliging server tells me the cones and the prices here are normal. He points to a small laminated menu stuck in the corner of the ice cream display. And sure enough, there's a four-scoop cone priced at 16 euros, $21. But he tells me it's made with big scoops that add up to a pound and a half of ice cream. Oh, and there are fruit bits on top too. Anyway, he says, I don't see what the big fuss is about. It's all normal. But the owner of the Anglican-American bookstore down the street says she's been in the historic neighborhood too long to buy the normal argument. Yeah, it's uh, terrible because it's for the tourists. It's the price for the tourists. She says inflated prices are rampant in Rome's historic center, and they don't just affect the tourists. If we go to buy uh, a coffee for, for us, for the Italians, in the morning it's uh, 80 cents, in the afternoon is another price, one euro and twenty. Because there is the Japanese tourist is furbo, come si dice? Sneaky. It's sneaky. It's very sneaky. Even Rome's mayor John Nielamano agrees. He's offered to fly the four British ice cream eaters back to the city to make up for their loss. Did I mention elections are coming up? Political campaigning aside, Rome mayors have long been engaged in losing battles against a full range of tourists targeting shysters, like the pirate taxis who offer confused tourist rides at the airport and train station for three or four times the regular price. But as this American honeymooner licking an ice cream cone near the Spanish Steppe says, the smaller rip-offs are still ubiquitous. Sometimes when I go to restaurants, we did appetizers and we were like, okay, we'll do some cheese and they brought us like a huge a whole block of mozzarella cheese like a whole round one so they sit there and they push things definitely at restaurants without asking yeah nearby 18 year old eduardo schizano stands with two female friends finishing off their one scoops schizano has heard about the infamous 21 dollar cones which he sort of justifies because of the parlor's prime location next to the Spanish Steps. I'm from Rome, so I know that the food here costs really much because here we are in front of Piazza di Spagna. Yeah, but you, 16 euros for four scoops, would you pay that? No, absolutely not. Nor would any other Italian. But Schisano wants to send a message to tourists coming to Italy. Italian people are not like this. Not all. Not all the people. <laughs> Just few people. <laughs> so pay attention. For the world, I'm Megan Williams in Rome. And this is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a push for caregivers' rights, including the right to uninterrupted sleep. 
One activist recalls an immigrant worker's reaction to that proposal. She burst into laughter, like, oh, I would love that. That would be amazing. I've never had the right to sleep eight hours in a row. Because caregiving requires sometimes care every two hours if you're caring for elderly people. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Over the next three days, we're going to shine a light on what's sometimes called the world's most invisible workforce. These are domestic workers, nannies, house cleaners, caregivers. An estimated 2 million people do this work in the U.S. Most are women, and many are immigrants. As part of our global nation coverage, the world's Monica Campbell starts our series with the story of a living caregiver from Fiji, her elderly employer, and a documentary highlighting these intimate partnerships. My name is Florence Trotter, and I had an accident. I fell. The accident changed Trotter's life. Trotter, who's in her 80s, has no family nearby. She needed someone to move in and care for her immediately. But nobody she hired clicked. Oh, very unsuccessful until I found Josie. Josie Garish, a caregiver from Fiji. Trotter liked Garish, and she had good references. She hired her right away. And it's easy to see why. Garish, in her early 40s, is energetic, has a quick laugh, and says she treats her employers like family. I take care of her, get her meals, get her up in the morning, and drive her to the doctors, do everything. Hi, Florence. Everything. I mean, whatever I have to do, Josie says. I met Trotter and Garish in Sebastopol, California, north of San Francisco. They'd ventured out to see a short documentary about Garish. The film, by director Theo Rigby, shows how immigrant caregivers increasingly fill a demand in America to care for the disabled and elderly. In America, they have a lot of money. Pay someone else to take care of the elder. They don't have the time, and they don't have the patience. The film shows Garish cooking and shopping for a previous employer, an ailing Japanese woman. She feeds her, turns her over so she won't get bed sores. It's nonstop work. (laughs) After the film... Florence Trotter says she realizes how little she knew about Garish's life, how she missed Fiji, and how she's in the U.S. without legal authorization. This is a shock to me because I just didn't know. Trotter says she's against hiring people without papers, but she can't say why she never asked Garish for documentation. Maybe because she didn't want to know, she says, because Garish was a good fit. Meanwhile, Garish says she doesn't worry about stepping out of the shadows so publicly. She tells Trotter how she's hoping immigration reform might grant her legal status. It's getting there. It's a long journey, but we'll get there. Then Garish tells Trotter she's working to improve labor conditions for other caregivers, nannies and housekeepers. 
In California, there's an estimated 200,000 of them, many without papers. The women, the Mexicans or the foreigners that come and work, they are afraid of doing going to work. They get paid under the table. They are afraid of... Oh, there's a lot of that, getting paid under the table. A lot. Yes, well, that's the only kind of work that we can do. We would like to do other stuff, but that's, we're stuck with that. Garish says she's felt mistreated by other employers. You know, you're like a slave. We do this, do that, do this, do that. I said, wait a minute, I only have two hands. I'll have to get this. But they want you right, right there, right there, right there. Otherwise, I'll kick you out. But you have to do it because otherwise, what else can you do? You need to survive. Garish is working with labor advocate Maureen Pertil, who organizes immigrant women at the Grayton Day Labor Center nearby. Pertil remembers Garish's reaction when she told her that among other demands, like overtime and vacation, they'd push for workers to get uninterrupted sleep. She burst into laughter, in this uncomfortable laughter, like, oh, I would love that. That would be amazing. I've never had the right to sleep five hours in a row or eight hours in a row. Because caregiving requires sometimes, you know, care every two hours if you're caring for elderly people. It's the case with Garish, who wakes up with Florence Trotter at 4 or 5 a.m. daily. Oh, my goodness gracious. You need domestic help. I don't know what I would do without, without Josie. I couldn't survive. Trotter hopes that Garish will legalize her status in the U.S. soon. She understands now that deportation is a constant worry for her caretaker. Every day you live in fear, just looking behind your shoulders every day. The question now is whether new legislation would let both women rest a little easier. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell, Sebastopol, California. We have a link to the trailer for The Caretaker at theworld.org. Tomorrow, we'll hear more about efforts to improve labor conditions for domestic workers here. Another problem facing some immigrants here is trouble getting bank loans. They can't borrow money for a car or a house if they don't have credit scores, and many of them don't. Now, a nonprofit group in San Francisco has found a novel way to help them establish credit histories. The world's Jason Margolis has the story. Here's how it works when many people in the developing world want to buy a piece of furniture or a new radio. They turn to savings clubs. Jonathan Mordock at NYU calls them Rotating Savings and Credit Associations, or ROSCAs. The basic ROSCA is very, very simple, and it's just brilliant. A group of people come together, and they each agree to put in a certain amount of money. In South Africa, there's a woman who is a part of a group. Every month, they put in $9. Eleven people were in the group. So every month, somebody got $99 to spend on a big purchase. And the advantages to them were discipline, kind of solidarity, the um, peer pressure that comes from saving with a group. And in many ways, we see this being a substitute for the kinds of mechanisms that a lot of people in richer countries take for granted. We see them in Africa, where they're called tontines. In China, they're called huay. In Mexico, they're called tanda. And in India, we call them chit funds. Many immigrants in the United States bring these savings clubs with them. But it only takes you so far over here. Mexican immigrant Juana Laura Chavera Ramirez has been living in San Francisco for 11 years. During that time, she's participated in about 20 savings clubs, pooling money with family members and co-workers. It's worked out well, but... She says she has no credit history. 
So she says she had to put money down to get direct TV, gas, and electricity. She had to leave a three-month deposit for her rent. Then, not long ago, Ramirez found out about the Mission Asset Fund in San Francisco's Mission District, a heavily Latino neighborhood. Jose Quinones, the group's executive director, is a Mexican immigrant who moved to the United States as a child. Quinones worked as a congressional aide in Washington, where he became interested in getting financial outsiders into the mainstream. That's where he learned about lending circles. And so well, what I saw was that, well, you know, actually the payments and the lending that happens in those lending circles, even though they're informal, it's actually, you know, they're very exactly the same activity that we do in the formal financial system where we, we go into a bank, borrow money, and then pay them back. And when we do that, it gets recorded and reported to the credit bureaus. So Quinones figured, why not document what's happening within immigrant savings clubs as well? That's what his organization now does. We essentially, essentially just record, make a record of all those decisions about, you know, how much people are going to contribute, you know, and by when they're going to contribute and who's going to take the money first and who's going to take the money second. And rather quickly, a credit history is born. Pero ya tengo. Juana Laura Chavera Ramirez says after participating in two lending circles managed by the Mission Asset Fund, she now has a decent credit score. In the past four and a half years, the fund has helped some 2,000 people establish or improve their credit. An encouraging start, but it's been a slow process. Neil Esty, the associate director of Boston University's Center for Finance, Law, and Policy, says that's understandable. Borrowing amongst your friends is, if you've been doing this for a while, you understand how it works. You don't know how it works with this formal financial institution. All of a sudden, there's agreements you have to sign, there's all this technical jargon that really it's, it's difficult enough to understand if you're an everyday person, you know, spent your entire life in the U.S. Let alone somebody from a foreign country who grew up in a place where banks aren't trusted. On top of that, many immigrants have lost faith in U.S. banks after the subprime mortgage mess and subsequent foreclosures, which hit immigrant communities particularly hard. Esty says lending institutions need to educate potential customers and explain why they should join the formal sector. You get to a certain point where if you're really going to progress, you need to get into a formal financial institution because that's where the large denominations are. You To really develop and build your assets, you have to get into the financial institution. Juana Laura Chavero Ramirez got the message. With her new credit score, she's talking about leaving her job in San Francisco preparing sandwiches and applying for a bank loan to start her own embroidery business. Immigrants like Ramirez may soon need to borrow money for another venture as well. If Congress passes an immigration reform bill, there will surely be hefty costs associated with applying to become a U.S. resident. And coming up with thousands of dollars in a hurry could be tough for a poor immigrant without access to credit. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, San Francisco. You will find more of our Global Nation coverage of issues of immigration at theworld.org. And be sure to add your voice to the conversation on Twitter. We tweet at PRI The World. Just use the hashtag Global Nation. Now, here's something you don't see or hear. At New York's Grand Central Station very often, a group of Iranians handing a Persian rug as a gift to a group of Americans and a crowd applauding the move. The gifts were exchanged on, of all things, a wrestling mat. The U.S. and Iran, of course, don't see eye to eye on much of anything these days, except 
wrestling. That's because the International Olympic Committee wants to drop the sport starting in 2020. But Iran and the United States, along with powerhouse Russia, don't want to see that happen. And so today in New York City and in Grand Central Station, no less, top wrestlers from all three countries are grappling in a series of exhibition matches. The world's Clark Boyd has been following the story for us. And Clark, Iran, the U.S. and Russia, all in New York City, Grand Central Station, wrestling there on the floor. Pretty attention getting. I would say so, Marco. In fact, they're calling it the rumble on the rails. Oh, good. Um, you know, I, I think that this is this is really an effort from all three countries uh, who are all exceedingly good uh, at amateur wrestling uh, to really try to save the sport and to, to try to, you know, get the International Olympic Committee to reverse this idea that it should be dropped as an Olympic sport in 2020. And are there political overtones to this, or is it kind of notable that they're all getting together despite the politics? Well, everybody outside of the wrestling world wants to put politics all over it. I mean, given the state of affairs between the United States and Iran right now, given what's going on between the United States and Russia right now, everybody wants to paint this uh, with a political brush. The thing of it is, though, when you talk to the wrestlers and you talk to the coaches and the trainers, they are all very, very keen to point out that this is not about politics, that this is about the fact that you're talking about three countries that have the best wrestlers in the world, and these wrestlers want to wrestle against each other because it's the best competition. It's really as simple as that. And you've covered the so-called wrestling diplomacy between the U.S. and Iran. Has, has wrestling made a difference? Well, in the times that I've seen it play out, uh, it seems to have. I'm thinking back to the late 1990s when I went to Spokane, Washington, to cover the Iranian wrestling team coming here. You had Iranian-Americans flying to this event from all across the United States to, to, to support the, both the Iranian team and the U.S. team. And what I was struck with more than anything was how all the fans would sit together. Some were cheering for Iran. There were probably just as many, if, if not more, Iranian flags flying uh, in that arena than there were uh, U.S. flags. But everybody was getting along. Everybody was joking. Everybody was trading stories. So I, I think it has made a difference, and certainly for the wrestlers themselves. Uh, it's made a difference. You've had this is think about it, Marco. This is kind of the only close contact that Americans and Iranians are having. The, the U.S. wrestlers were just over there in February for the World Cup. And uh, Jordan Burroughs, who you heard winning that mm -hmm. match a little bit earlier, had this to say about uh, his experience on being in Iran and competing. It was awesome. They were extremely hospitable. The fans love the sport of wrestling. It's actually one of their national sports in uh, the country of Iran. So they were excited to see all the American wrestlers, especially the champions, Olympic and world champions. It was extremely exciting. A lot of people, a lot of great fans, and it was a pretty cool country. All right. So that's uh, American wrestler Jordan Burroughs. Uh, how important, Clark, is wrestling in Iran? And as an Olympic event, is it crucial to Iran's uh, presence at the Olympics? It's it's certainly one of those sports that is. And I think that for Iranians, uh, it's it's more than just a sport. It's part of their culture. It's part of their history. It's something that people talk about and follow and, and really feel a close connection to. You know, Jordan Burroughs probably said it best. He said, when I landed in Tehran, they treated me like a cross between, you know, Justin Bieber and Michael Jordan. I was like the big, the big star. And he said, I would never get that here. They knew his name before he got there. Absolutely. So will today's exhibition at Grand Central Station make a difference in uh, the IOC's decision-making process on wrestling as an Olympic sport? I think it's hard to say, Marco. You know, the IOC has been pushing very hard to get a whole bunch of uh, what they consider to be newer and, and I guess what you would call hipper sports in there karate and wushu and different martial arts. And of course, wrestling is one of the original Olympic sports. Whether this will make a difference or not, I don't know. But they are, you know, it's not only this today. They're also pushing forward. And at the weekend in Los Angeles, or as, you know, some people like to call it, Tarangelis, because mm -hmm. there's so many, 
and the Iranian mm-hmm. people of Iranian descent there. The U.S. and Iran will, will wrestle uh, out on the West Coast this weekend. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for uh, those three wrestling teams uh, because otherwise I'm going to figure out what that word wushu is. The world's Clark Boyd, thanks so much. You're welcome, Marco. Competition of a different sort now. Try this question from a math tournament in South Africa. In 52 consecutive days, how many Wednesdays can there be at most? Okay, I think that's an easy one. Uh, One of the multiple choices is seven, so I'll say seven. Anyway, we've got harder questions in the latest blog post from reporter Anders Kelto. All this year, he's following the lives of students at a high school in Cape Town. Learn about the students and their recent math competition at theworld.org slash school year. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World The Amazons of Greek mythology are fierce female warriors, and no, they're not from the Amazon rainforest in South America. Some say they come from Libya. Others believe the all-female tribe lived in what is now Ukraine. And in Ukraine, there's a group of women who say they are the new Amazons. Reporter Ashley Kleek went to go find them in western Ukraine. By day, Katerina Tarnovska is a preschool gym teacher, leading groups of wiggly four-year-olds in a circle around a gym. They stretch up to the sky, down to the floor. Katerina is a good teacher, tough and caring. In her spare time, the 34-year-old is the leader of Asharda, a female martial arts group that claims to be the new tribe of Amazons. They're the mythical all-female warriors that allegedly participated in the Trojan War and worked with Alexander the Great. They're famously said to have cut off their left breasts so they could aim their arrows more accurately. Katerina doesn't believe that, but she does believe that the Amazons are the direct ancestors of Ukrainian women. If you read the histories, you see in the Ukraine there lived a group of young women who came together to support each other in war. It was like a women's school where women who liked to fight could learn and lead such a life. And it's time, Katerina says, for Ukrainian women to reconnect with their warrior past. So in 2002, Katerina began to develop an all-female martial art. It's based on another recently created form of fighting called Fighting Hopak, but with a special emphasis on self-defense. She pasted flyers all over Lviv, inviting girls to train in the Carpathian Mountains. Word spread, and dozens of girls joined. It's like camp, Katerina says. Girls do arts and crafts, sing songs around a campfire, and practice martial arts. And Katerina gives lectures about Ukrainian history and women's role in society. We ask, who are women and girl warriors? What kind of laws should they follow? How does one become a true warrior? And what kind of women and heroines have lived in the past? And what role have they played in our history? But Katerina stresses that Asharda is not out to claim anything for women. It's not a group of feminists. Ukrainian women, she says, have always been equals. I don't think it was something real of this kind in Ukraine. Oksana Kiss is an anthropologist and historian in Lviv. But I also believe that no matter if there was any historical fact of Amazons in Ukraine or matriarchs in Ukraine, if certain groups of women would prefer to develop this kind of culture or invent this kind of culture, which empowers them in a way, it's okay. She says when Ukraine was part of the USSR, Soviet propaganda instructed women that they were equal to men. In today's Ukraine, the laws are progressive and in favor of women. What Ukrainians always try to do, they always try to find the unique Ukrainian way 
to do everything, you know, for women's liberation, for martial arts, for whatever. But policy and practice in Ukraine are different. KISS says women make up only 10% of the Ukrainian parliament. They're paid 30% less than men with the same jobs, and in some fields, like computers. Even though men and women study the subject at roughly the same rate, there are hardly any women working in IT. And this is where Katerina thinks her warrior training can help. In a church basement across town, a group of 13 guys and two girls practice hurling each other onto the mats. Katerina changes from gold-sparkled jeans to thigh-length boxing shorts emblazoned with a hissing viper. She suits up in gloves. Katerina is training in kickboxing and Mai Tai. She spars with her trainer in preparation for an upcoming match. She'll teach the move she learns to her Amazons, she says, and that will help them be better, tougher people, regardless of what they do in life. You can be a warrior businessman, you can be a warrior politician, a warrior trolley operator. Or a preschool gym teacher. For The World, I'm Ashley Creek in Lviv. Also in that part of the world, a teenager from Tbilisi, Georgia, is making his own musical path. His name is Beka Gochazvili. On Friday, he'll be part of a jazz concert in New York, hosted by the piano great Chick Corea. It's called Musicians of the Future. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. When Beka Gochazvili was about three, he was crazy about his pacifier. Couldn't get enough of it. His dad, so the family story goes, wanted to change that, so he played a trick. First, he hid the pacifier. Next. He said, so if you will play that phrase, he would give me my pacifier back. His dad left the room, leaving little Becca at the piano, who promptly repeated the Scott Joplin phrase note for note. I realized that I didn't want any pacifier back anymore because my pacifier was piano now. It's a good story for a musical prodigy, though maybe the details have been smoothed out over the years. Still, there's no doubt Becca Gotchashvili is a prodigy. He's played with some of the biggest names in American jazz, and he only just turned 17. Becker was born in Tbilisi in 1996. There wasn't much jazz there, but his dad loved the music, and he managed to get a videotape of Oscar Peterson live in concert. It was my lullaby, you know. I was waking up with Oscar, I was sleeping with Oscar, you know. Now, Becker Gotcheshvili is a student at Juilliard in New York. But when he was 11, he played for Condoleezza Rice, then Secretary of State, when she visited Georgia. She's a classical pianist herself. Visiting jazz musicians took note too. They'd invite Becca to play with them and eventually helped him make the journey to the U.S. in 2009. The way he tells it, his Juilliard audition was to the point. Hey, Becca, one, two, one, two, three, four. That's what we talked. <laughs> That's like jazz, jazz conversations. And then we talked... phrasing conversation. But for Becca, his success, like winning a big jazz competition a few years ago in Switzerland, for him, it's really all an act of patriotism. The main reason I'm here 
is for my country to make sure that everybody knows that Georgia is a great country. Becca Gotchashvili surrounds himself with other Georgians here in New York. There's only one thing missing: his girlfriend. She's a business student in Tbilisi. Oh, that's that's really hard. I know. You know, like we miss each other, and she gives me a lot of thoughts to describe in music. Her name is Niniko, and this is her song. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.